I think it's exciting to do your first deal and you kind of want to get in and swim with the sharks. So I think things like that is not being too excited, but also understanding when it's time to jump in, you got to do it and you got to make sure your due diligence is done properly with a business strategy that you can execute on. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into... Any of the fluffy stuff with us today, Zach Feldman. How you doing, Zach? Good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it's my pleasure. A little bit about Zach. He's a VP of development at Aptitude Development, which is a student housing developer. He's also the CEO and founder of Enjoy 77 Holdings, which is a real estate investment company which specializes in student housing and multifamily investments. Based in New York City, originally from Boston area. With that being said, Zach, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. So as you mentioned, I kind of started my own company, which is really a side hustle kind of after my nine to five. I had this dream of of being an energy trader right out of college. I was growing within that space. I ended up buying my first four family down the street from my office that I still own today with one of my best friends from childhood. And I kind of got the real real estate bug from there. I grew up in a quasi real estate family in Boston and always thought I wanted to invest in it on the side. But once I bought my first building, which was right at the age of 22, it really kicked off my love for the industry and, and what you can do with a piece of property from both the acquisition standpoint and the operation standpoint. And it's tangible. Working in the energy space, it was great, but you're trading renewable energy credits and it's not tangible. You can't really hold on to electricity. You can't package it. You can't do much with that. So once I bought the first one, it was kind of off to the races. From there, I started buying throughout the Northeast and I bought student housing with the idea that I thought I knew student housing because I just graduated from college. I knew nothing about student housing, (laughs) but was able to buy some pretty good assets. I bought a small portfolio in Buffalo with one of my roommates from college who was local near a school up there and then started to buy near Providence College and was doing pretty good, but this was kind of my side hustle, my night job, so to say, but was able to acquire about 22 buildings with different partners and and groups and investors, and then was able to parlay that into my current role as the VP of new development at Aptitude Development, where we are a national student housing developer. We currently have a little over 3,000 beds that we own with another quarter billion dollars in construction going on as we speak. So we're very bullish on the industry and think we have a lot of tailwinds going into the future. So that's a, a little bit of background on me, but I'm very much an open book. Wow. Lots to unpack there and very interesting. I'm glad that you teed it up that way. Let's talk about very briefly the first four family at age 22. How much did you buy it for? How much did you save? And where did you get that money that you saved? Or Yeah. So that was bought as an FHA loan. So that was kind of how I was able to come up with the capital right out of college. I had some savings from over the years, as well as whatever I made from my day job, I knew I wanted to invest it. And that kind of came from the philosophy of rich dad, poor dad, which mm-hmm. is a pretty common theme, I think, for most real estate investors these days. But I originally bought it. We bought it for around 740 It was a four family. 
was fully occupied at the time. Where? Boston? In Stanford, Connecticut. Stanford, Connecticut. Sorry, I missed that. Okay. It has a really strong rent role. It's a good working class neighborhood, and that's going through a lot of gentrification on the waterfront in Stanford, Connecticut. It's right along the Metro North near New York City. So all of the macros of it made sense. And when you look at the type of money you can put down on an FHA loan, I think it's a great way to get involved and figure out if you want to do this more. You don't have you know, the commitment of going and trying to run a 150 unit building. You can kind of dip your toe in the water and understand how to manage, how to get good tenants and all that kind of stuff. But that was the first one and it was kind of off to the races from there. And how much did you end up needing to put down? It was three and a half percent. Three and a half percent. You're going to make me do some math. About $26,000. Did my calculator compute correctly? Yeah. And then we came up with some money for some repairs and maintenance out of pocket, but that sounds pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Thank you, calculator, on that one. <laughs> I'll give it a nice pet right now. In Stamford, Connecticut, a quick Google search shows University of Connecticut, Stamford campus. Was that the student housing? That was not a student housing play. Okay. That was more so. The opportunity came up and it was an off-market deal. It was a friend of a friend who owned it, had done a lot of work to it over the years and was trying to get rid of it. Essentially, we were able to work in to help him to not pay a broker fee. So it was off-market and got a lot mm-hmm. of it, a little bit better pricing, but I didn't know what I was doing by any stretch of the imagination. I majored in finance and minored in, in economics and, and international relations. And I read the real estate game and I thought I knew what I was doing. And then you buy the building and it's totally different, but it's a great opportunity. And, and I still own to this day and, and I plan to for the foreseeable future. What was surprising to you on that first deal? I think the the big thing with the first deal you do is you can be as prepared as humanly possible, but it's different when you get in the ring and it's real. So there were a lot of lessons to learn from making sure we hired the right management company because I worked a full-time job and didn't want to deal with that. Making sure the right tenant base is in there and understanding how to own and operate it correctly. It was the first time I had ever had to file a tax return for myself as a W-2 employee in my day job, but also filing a tax return for an LLC. And, and all of this, you can read about it and try your best to understand, but really doing it for the first time throws you in the deep end pretty quick. And it was an exciting time and have continued to just grow from there. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless, from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. And remember to mention the Best Ever Podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. 
Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. Taking a look at the profitability of it, if you could go back and do things a little bit differently, what's one thing you would do differently to make it a little bit more profitable? I think a big thing is understanding not only the inspection, but what the lifespan of certain deferred maintenance might be. I had to redo the, the roof about two years ago now. 20,000 plus dollars. And maybe going in, I would have negotiated that down or had him done it day one and pull it out of the purchase price or, or find a creative way to finance that versus having to come out of pocket down the road. I think it's exciting to do your first deal and you kind of want to get in and swim with the sharks. So I think things like that is not being too excited, but also understanding when it's time to jump in, you got to do it and you got to make sure your diligence is done properly with a business strategy that you can execute on. Bravo, 22 years old, $740,000 for a unit. Nice work on that. You still own it? I do. Okay, all right. So let's move on to 22 buildings, and then we'll talk about aptitude. But first, you have 22 buildings as what you call your side hustle. That's quite the side hustle. 22 buildings spread out over how many markets? It's about five. So from Stanford, I started to buy in Buffalo, New York. I thought I wanted to go into student housing on a small scale. I thought I understood it because I just graduated shortly before that. And essentially what I did was I pulled a list of every school in the United States. And then their zip code, I pulled their median home price. And then I actually outsourced this to Brickwork India, which I had not to Tim Ferriss for turning me on to them. But they did a lot of the grunt work of what the median home price in the area, what the median income was. And then I had them go in and pull from Zillow the four bed, three bed, two bed, and one bed rent in those zip codes. And I figured out what the rent per bed is. And then I ended up coming up with a very back of the envelope, highest yields in the country for towns that had colleges in them. And Buffalo was in top 15 or 10. And my old roommate from college lived in Buffalo and was a commercial broker there. So that was how I got turned on to Buffalo. And we started buying small two and three families in a a single family or two near a a smaller school up there and did pretty well with them to date. And and we still own them. What a way to engineer that. Bravo. Didn't have really any money to deploy. So I was kind of under the philosophy of, I really want high cash on cash. I want really good mailbox money. I'm not going to bank on appreciation because I know I'm not that sophisticated yet. And don't really want to go compete with the guys in in Brooklyn and and Manhattan. And and that's where I live now, trying to buy two, threes, fours, and five caps. Can't miss a number on those. So I wanted to give myself as much buffer as I could, which is why I I went to higher yield markets that had lesser appreciation. Mm -hmm. Um, So there I I went to um, Providence, where as a group of partners, I'm a minority partner there. We own about 11 buildings near PC and then did that in a few other markets throughout the Northeast. What are the other two? Oneonta, New York, near SUNY Oneonta, and then Boston, Mass. Well, which one is the least profitable out of all those buildings? 
We bought a single family in Buffalo that kind of taught us a tough lesson in the real world. And I recommend everyone who's getting started or, or trying to get started to not get involved with single families unless you can get a large portfolio. Because if you have a larger scale building and you have one vacancy, it's not going to kill you. If you have a vacancy on a single family, it's going to kill you. And that was what we learned the hard way. We got great rents and we had a frat in there near the school with seven or eight beds. And for some reason, we had a, an issue with the management company and they could not lease it out. We ended up firing the management company and got close to suing them, but to story for a different time. But they really did a number on that one, weren't able to rent it out. And we had to sit on it for about six months. So that was kind of a nightmare. And I think in the end, we're going to be just fine. It's appreciated quite a bit and we get a very strong rent there now. But for a while, it was a real time suck and it's not easy to go rent a bedroom. Who hired the management company? We did. Knowing what you know now, what questions or research would you do prior to hiring your next management company if you decided to do that type of single family home venture again? I think part of it was they were featured on some large podcasts and had a really good, very good facade where we thought they were legit. We thought because of what they'd been on and, and the way they were kind of marketing themselves that they took it seriously. And then once we peeled behind the curtain, the two founders, one had a full-time job, one didn't even live in the area, but they were being able to bring in new leads pretty aggressively and then dump it off to some kids that had never done this before. And it got pretty ugly because it was my life savings that got poured into this. And, you know, I was in my early twenties and to have someone that you pay a good fee to and respect from the beginning, let it go off the rails, your responsibility as an owner, but we nipped it in the bud in a reasonable time frame and have been able to turn it around. What's the most profitable? Hmm. I believe in buy and hold. So I think all the buildings that I've been able to execute a business strategy of rehabbing, leasing up, and then refinancing my money out, I had a pretty good track record of doing that on some of these smaller buildings and continue to look to do that in the future. So I think those are home run deals where you can not only pull out all your cash, but take proceeds off the top too, and still have some pretty healthy cash flow is definitely my most profitable. And I've done that quite a few times now. No one dislikes infinite returns. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about where you're at now, VP of development and aptitude development. You said you all have $250 million worth of construction going on right now, and you have 3,000 beds that you own. What are you building? So we build institutional quality student housing. And I guess for the average person that hasn't been in a, a newer style student housing building is, I think when a lot of people think of college housing, they think of animal house or maybe a single family with kegs on the front yard and cars everywhere. And there definitely is that at every school. But from a 30,000 foot view, it looks and is built in a similar manner to a a traditional class A type multifamily building. But the difference is you're focusing all the amenities and catering to students. So instead of having a business center, we have study rooms where you might have 500 to 1,000 square feet study rooms on every single floor in multiple locations. So a kid can go walk down the hall to study for finals versus go to the library on campus at 1 a.m. You really focus on health and wellness. And the other big thing in student housing is bed-to-bath parity, where you might have in a multifamily building studios, ones and twos, you have studios, ones, twos, fours, fives, six bedrooms sometime, and they have bed-bath parity and they're fully furnished. So say, Joe, you and I were best friends. We go to school at the University of Arkansas and we want to go live at the Marshall is our branded building. It's called the Marshall. We have that in almost every market we're in. You say it was Zach and Joe and we had two other friends. We'd show up day one and all we'd bring is our suitcase and a thing of linens. So you show up, there's a bed with a desk, a chair, cabinets, and you have your own bathroom and walk-in closet in bedroom. So you have a four bed, four bath. 
and you share the common areas. You share the living room and the kitchen. You have a laundry room in the unit. And then obviously you have the amenities throughout the building, which focus on health and wellness and, and education. You also have typically a pool, really highly amenitized type gyms with indoor, outdoor gyms where kids can have a garage door that slide up. That is kind of the basics in terms of student housing is hedge and beds. And you typically get the highest rent per foot of almost any asset class being in the student housing space. And you have a very captive audience. Highest rent per square foot. On the flip side, what's a risk or two that's unique to student housing? One of the risks is that you have turnover every year. Not 100% by any means, but it's less of a stable rent roll than your traditional multifamily where people stay for two to five years. You typically have a renewal rate of anywhere, depending on the market, from 30 to 50%. But the good part about that is it's easier to raise rents. So if you know that the market's going in the right direction, you can raise those rents pretty well. So that is, I guess, one of the, the good and bad. But one of the other great things that comes with that is you have most of the leases are guaranteed by the parents. So it's not just the student who doesn't have any income that's trying to pay the rent. It's guaranteed by the parents that are typically paying their rent anyway. And that has backed up. The pride of the industry has always been that it's very recession resilient. And when college campuses were closed down in the spring and summer because of COVID-19, the industry collections were in the low to mid-90s as a whole. And this is when kids were not there and were not on campus. Mm -hmm. And that's because the parents are on the hook? Yes. It's a good way to put it. Parents are on the hook. <laughs> So one thing that is pricey tends to be is the turnover cost to turn a unit and get it ready with the turnover happening so frequently. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, but I also think it's a common misconception. Keep in mind, these buildings are fully staffed. So you have anywhere from two to four porters, multiple maintenance supervisors, as well as a full superintendent. You have four to five community managers, as well as a formal general manager and assistant general manager. So you have a pretty large staff that's in the building on a day-to-day -day basis, and you put cameras in every hallway and common area. So you do have your standard wear and tear that's a bit of a higher level than maybe your multifamily where your clientele is working class type individuals within a city. But you're not waking up every morning with holes in walls and kegs thrown off balconies. Sure, you have your instances, but I think it's a misconception Whereas you're in a single family with no oversight and you have eight people in it, that can get crazy pretty quickly compared to a 400 to 800 bed type complex that's fully staffed. Kids do show a little bit more respect than its reputation precedes it. Taking a step back, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I think it's to get started. I think a lot of people have that analysis type paralysis and they don't want to take the, the dive into the deep end. And I think it's really important to do your due diligence and understand what you're going after. But I do think it, eventually you have to go after it. And once you do, most of the time you can either sink and swim and a lot of people seem to swim. You are an example of that. That's for sure. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. First quick word from best ever partners. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. Best ever book you've recently read? Recently read, I would say The Triumph of the City. It kind of goes about how cities are designed and programmed and what is great from a master planning standpoint, why some cities like Detroit have failed 
while cities like New York and Tokyo, Japan have continued to reinvent themselves for hundreds of years. So I would、mm. highly recommend that. Real estate specific, I also like skyscraper dreams. It's really a history of Manhattan's real estate from when the original settlers traded beads for the land and the original Astors and what they owned into current day development with skyscrapers. So that's a great read.、Oh. I'm glad I asked you that question. Those are two books that I haven't come across yet. I highly recommend both of them. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? I started a charity probably five years ago now. It's called the Wildcat Fund. It's for my high school alma mater, where we take certain kids that are part of the Meco program, which is a program throughout Boston, and some of the kids go to school at Weston High School, which is where I grew up. And we have a mentorship program and a quasi scholarship program where we help them. If they need to fly out for an interview, or if they need to get a new suit for work, these are kids from our high school that came through the Meco program, and we help them set them up with the right people to mentor them in life. So, if they were into real estate, I'd hook them up with Joe, or if they wanted to go into banking, I might hook them up with someone that's in the banking industry and kind of help them one figure out what they want to do with their life, and two make sure that they're on the right path. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? They can call me or text me. It's the easiest way to do it. I'm always available. My cell phone number is seven eight one seven eight nine four three five four. You can definitely link that up in the show notes after. But I'm always happy to talk more about my experience in the student housing industry and be a resource in any way I can. What an informative conversation on student housing and also how to make things happen right out of the gate after college. Zach, thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it.